You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, I thank you that we have another opportunity to consider one of the most important, perhaps one of the most contested areas of the scriptures that we could possibly study. And Lord, it's going to take someone greater than myself to adequately share what the Bible teaches. And so I'm deeply desiring that the Holy Spirit would come and prompt me and prompt my friends here, and that where necessary, Father, you would take my words and change them between my mouth and their ears if necessary. We want to know you, Jesus, and Father, we love you, and, and the Holy Spirit is what makes it all happen. And so, please guide us and bless us now in every way, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to close the door just a little bit so we're not air conditioning outside. Yesterday we went very quickly, didn't we? Um, there's a reason why you have the booklets, because if you didn't have the booklets, you could not retain what, you, what you're receiving. And we're not even looking at each verse. Um, but I went to the trouble because I felt like this subject, it needs to be exhaustive. So you truly know how much is there, because people will minimize and uh, if we succeed today, tomorrow, we're going to spend time looking at the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament is full of the work of the Holy Spirit in, in ways that could only be a person working, not just some kind of spirit. Uh, and so, um, you know, just to be safe, bring your booklets back, especially the, the last few or whatever, so that, you know, everyone has what they need. Uh, again, um, you know, understand we're studying a mystery. And human language is not really equipped to talk about the Godhead. God operates at a different level than we do. God can be everywhere at the same time. God sees the past and the future as if it were this moment. We don't understand that. And, and God exists without any beginning. And Christ is called, is God, as we've learned but he is, and called a son, but called an eternal son. Okay? All of those things are mysteries, and all we can do is really understand a little bit about the hem of his garment. And if we understand that, what God has revealed, then we can have an assurance of what we believe. And that's what I'm trying to do. But at the end of the day, there are some things that, that I have to tell you, I cannot explain this. And where, as I explained the first day, the Adventist Church was wise and Instead of choosing to try to believe in detail what Ellen White would have referred to as the essence of God, who he is and where he is, they've chosen to not say anything. And Ellen White said, in some of these matters, silence is eloquence. Okay? And so we're going to try to avoid that. And some of your discussions may ask us to get into the essence question, and I'm going to defer and say we can speculate, but understand. We, we may understand we're completely wrong. Okay? So, yeah, but I appreciate the privilege of doing this. So uh, I'll put this on at the end for those that want information on contact. And the other thing, I do have a booth. Some of you have come over. 
And I would love to show you some of the other things that I study. This is just one thing that I study. But let's uh, continue. Yesterday, we went through about page um, 33. Thank you. And, and yesterday, we looked at all the, the lines of evidence that, that proved that Christ was indeed God. Were we able to establish that for those of you that were here? Did you come away from the class with any doubt that the Bible speaks clearly of, of Christ as God in numerous, numerous ways? Yeah, that is clear. If anyone says Christ isn't God, please pull out your Bible and say, here's all the ways that the Bible proves that it's true. You know, there's, there's no reason for anyone to have any doubt on that. Now we want to talk about Christ as, um, as a distinct and eternal deity, starting on page 33, line 892. So we're going to be looking at the attributes of Christ and Yesterday, or the day before, we talked about the non-communicable attributes of God, which are, are things such as He has an everlasting to everlasting life, that He's self-existent. You and I have none of those characteristics, although Ellen White says God will give some elements of those things to us. Okay, that's interesting. But she says His attributes are unlimited in nature, and they were exhausted in the plan of redemption to save us. To me, that's a wonderful thought. These These infinite resources which are of unlimited you know avail uh, material were exhausted for you and I that's a precious precious thought so going to line 33 first we're going to look at Christ is a person so uh, I'm going to read, and I'm reading so that, because it's being recorded, Hebrews 1, 2-3, Hath in these days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Welcome, welcome. Did you bring any booklets with you? Both of them? Praise the Lord. And she needs them. It's not a problem. Even while I was here, someone came to me and said, well, you know, Christ is really only a spirit. And I asked the individual, please explain to me how Christ could have gone up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God if he's only a spirit. What? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, he, th the point is, is that it's very clear. And Paul speaks of Christ sitting down at the right hand of God numerous times in his writings. Okay? I believe that's one of the very strong, strong verses that we can, that we can look to for assurance that Jesus was indeed a distinct person. Now, Christ is also clearly distinct from his Father. And so there are verses in that regard. Look at line 907. It says, But under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Okay, and then that compares to the one on the page before, to Psalms 45, 6-7. Thy throne, O God, Elohim, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. So here... A Psalm of David is being used in the book of Hebrews to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And then Psalms 110.1, The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then in 917, they said unto him, The son of David, he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord. In other words, the Lord said to my Lord. That speaks of two different people. So Jesus was indeed distinct from his father. And here's a, quote, a footnote, footnote number nine, uh, 22 at the bottom of page 33. The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity. The bottom of the page, footnote number 22. The Lord Jesus, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity as a distinct person, yet one with the Father. And then she says in another letter, these words, um, quoting John 17, show that God and Christ are two personalities distinct and separate. Okay? And, and she uses the word personality and person interchangeably in some places. Okay? But the point is, he's a, the divine Son of God existed from eternity... To us, that's a conundrum, isn't it? Existed from eternity, but a son, a distinct person, yet one with the Father. We continue, and we're not going to look at all of these. Um, at line 935, here's a scripture where we hear this in a very clear way. And lo, Matthew 3, 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay? That was the father speaking of his son, my beloved son. Uh, and then Jesus, line 940, John 6, 38 to 39, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. We would agree with even superficial reading that that has to refer to two different people, right? Yes. Uh, and then John 17, 1, these words, line 947, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. I won't go any further. And at the end of our time Friday, we're going to talk about this whole idea of Jesus as the son. We'll kind of look at, at, at some thoughts on that. And then 961, Revelation 321, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. Okay, once again, we see the two of them are distinct. We turn the page now to line 977. Christ was pre-existent. When I say the word pre-existent, that means that he has existed in the past. Okay? That's different than self-existent. Pre-existent means he was, had an existence before. Line 980, John 1, 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That should be enough, really, to, to determine and prove the, the, uh, the divinity of Christ, that one verse alone. Uh, and I have a footnote there that you can read later, but, but it talks about the fact that that because the, the Greek says in beginning, it refers to a past that is eternal, that there is no beginning point when it's written that way. You can read that later yourselves. And then 8, 989, John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now we learned something about that yesterday. Did Jesus ever use the 
the, the most sacred name of God in the Old Testament. All the time. It's throughout the scriptures. And that is truly a name that is precious and we should claim. You know, it was given to the children of Israel when they were leaving Egypt. And I believe as we are on our own Exodus journey, that it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a name that we can claim in, in our experience as well. Is that the same I am in the garden when they arrested Jesus and they, he said I am he? That's a good question, although divinity, divinity shone and, and people fell to the ground without him saying anything. Anyway, it's, 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 it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ existed before. He said that himself, and here's the point. If Jesus did not exist before and he made these statements, then he's a complete fraud. Right? So this isn't just shades of meaning. This is very, very clear. He's very unequivocal about his preexistence. And those who say, actually... The Pharisees would have been correct saying that he was blasphemy. Exactly. And Ellen White comments and says that when he said, I am, he knew exactly what he was saying. And they said, do you mean, you know, that's my, my, my paraphrase, and he didn't correct them. And Ellen White says, because they understood exactly what he was trying to say. That's a, a very significant quote on this subject. Now, look at the footnote at line... No, don't, that's, that's my comment, so forget about that. Christ is eternal, line 1000. And we're going to look at some of these words in greater detail in the little green booklet. But um, look at... Line 1009, Micah 5.2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from what? From everlasting. Now you notice the first, he's, whose goings forth have been from of old. That's pre-existence, but everlasting is the fact that it's a pre-existence with no beginning. Okay? Of old, from everlasting. Um, Hebrews 1.8, But under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay? We already read that. Now, down here I have a list of words that Ellen White used to describe the eternal duration of Christ's life. And if you have your green book, I'd like us to look at some of these. Um, because they're instructive in their own way. So if you have the green book, I'll just tell you what lines to go to. Go to. We are not going to look at, at the, the verses. We've already looked at a few of them, although I would like you to look at, um, at Hebrews 7, 1 to 3, regarding Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, I'm at line 60, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, or king of peace, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest forever, or continually. So, you know, Melchizedek is, is given as an example of Christ, someone who had no beginning and no end. So now let's go to some, well, and then one other. 
Line 72, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That was line 72 and 73. And show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father. Okay, so Christ had an eternal life with the Father. And then the next one, line 75, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I am Alpha and Omega. Okay, beginning and end. Now, words that Christ used to describe Christ's eternal existence, the first one she used frequently was that he was from eternity. I'd like you to just look at snippets here. Um, if you would look down at line 132, from eternity there was a complete unity between the Father and the Son. They were two yet little short of being identical, two in individuality, yet one in spirit and heart and character. So it says, from eternity there was a complete unity. Uh, and so there are more. Line 152, that which in the councils of heaven the Father and the Son deemed essential for the salvation of man was defined from eternity by infinite truths which finite beings cannot fail to comprehend, etc. So from eternity is one of the, the phrases that she uses. Another one is the fact that he had an eternal existence. And she speaks of it, 194, remember that Christ Ristol, tempted like as we are, he staked even his own eternal existence. The next phrase is the most, I think the most important phrase that she used, where she speaks of Christ being from not just eternity, but from all eternity. She adds, adds a descriptor there. I believe these are the strongest statements. Line 28, Christ was indeed glorified even with the glory which he had with the Father, from all eternity. Do you think that's a pretty strong statement about an eternal past? Yeah. yeah. That Christ came from all eternity. Um, and I know that there's at least one individual who was not believing this at all, but it was this phrase that finally convicted the person that Christ had to have had a beginning without a birth at, at, in, in the distant past. So line 216, from all eternity, Christ was united with the Father, from all eternity. And then line 230, Christ was God essentially, and in the highest sense, he was with God from all eternity, God over all, blessed forevermore. Question, yes. Yes, so for that word eternity, some of the arguments that I'm hearing about it is that that, that at least their timeline, you know, the arguments that they're bringing up is that the eternity is like the reference for it was when Jesus was created, during that time span of sure. eternity. So how would you respond to that? Because here it's very clear, and I truly believe it. They don't usually quote this phrase. Yeah, so it's basically what happens, it's very selective, and that's why we're looking at all of them. But, but the word, if it was just from eternity, you could think of a, of a beginning, but when it says from all eternity, that seems to uh, suggest that there really is no beginning at all. Thank you for the question. Um, at least that's how I understand it, and I know that, that at least one individual who speaks quite a bit on it said it was this phrase that he could not get out of his mind. 
How could Christ come from all eternity and, 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 and still have a beginning somewhere? He said, it just defies that idea. Um, look at 275, and I try to give quotes in context. So if you want to read the whole quote, it's not just a line, but you can read all of it. I don't like when you can only read maybe one sentence. You can go back and read all of these. Christ is declared in the scriptures to be the Son of God. From all eternity, he has sustained this relation to Jehovah. Now, to us, it's a paradox that he could be a son from all eternity. But it's a paradox that he can be a son without a heavenly mother, too. You know, it's, you have to understand, there's, there's things that we just don't understand. That's part of the mystery here. But the point is, he existed from all eternity. Now, line 310, he existed from eternity. That's where there's, there's not the descriptor. The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity, a distinct person, yet one with the Father. And then, and then um, later, quoting, says the Lord possessed me in, in the beginning of his way. He declares before his work of old, I was set up from, how far back? From everlasting, okay? Everlasting. When Ellen White quotes, uh, this comes from Proverbs, she always quotes the, the portions of it that refer to the everlasting aspect of his life. It's interesting. Okay, from the eternal ages, line 337. Christ should be uplifted as the first great teacher, the only begotten Son of God, who is with the Father from eternal ages. Um, I'm not doing every, all of them. Look at 426. In speaking of his pre-existence, Christ carries the mind back through dateless ages. He assures us that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. Okay? Carries the mind back through the dateless ages. And then the word ever-living is used. Look at line 436. None but just such an ever-living mighty God could pay the ransom to save sinners. What does it mean to be an ever-living mighty God? What does that conjure up? Ever-living. Everlasting, right? And then uh, there's the idea of the eternal presence. And, and we were referring to this quotation, Desire of Ages. Silence fell upon the vast assembly. The name of God given to Moses to express the idea of the eternal presence had been claimed as his own by this Galilean rabbi. He had announced himself to be the self-existent one. Self-existence meaning that there was life within himself. He who had been promised to Israel, whose goings forth had been from of old, from the days of eternity. Okay? He used that term uh, of this self-existence, I am. The she also uses the word, the eternal word, not just the word, you know, but she says he was the eternal word. She adds a descriptor to that. Uh... Line 499, as the Son of God, he gives security to God in our behalf, and as the eternal word, as one equal with the Father, he assures us of the Father's love to usward who believe his pledged word. I'm at line 500 there. 
500, 499, 500. As the Son of God, he gives security to God in our behalf. And as the eternal word, not just the word, but as the eternal word, as one equal with the Father, he assures us of the Father's love to us who believe his pledged word. He's also called the eternal word. We continue. He's also called the eternal Son of God, line 660. The unworthiness, weakness, and inefficiency, line 660. Sorry. The unworthiness, weakness, and inefficiency of their own efforts, in contrast with those of the eternal Son of God, will render them humble, distrust, distrustful of self, and will lead them to rely upon Christ for strength and efficiency in their work. That's from the Review and Herald, August 8, 1878. And then go down to line 680. This comes from the Review and Herald, April 5, 1906. But while God's word speaks of the humanity of Christ when upon this earth, it also speaks decidedly regarding his preexistence. The word existed as a divine being, even as the eternal Son of God, in union and oneness with his Father, from everlasting he was the mediator of the covenant etc it's interesting that she'll use certain words and then she'll add another phrase that actually clarifies what she says and so she says from everlasting how long is everlasting it's everlasting he was the mediator of the covenant line 708 the eternal Son of God interposed himself and bore the bolts of the Father's wrath deserved by the sinner. Okay, and then from everlasting to everlasting, line 809, from the Review and Herald, April 5, 1906, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And she often quotes that, um, that, that verse of Scripture when speaking of Christ. And then, just a few more here, line 842, A life unreckoned by human computation, here Christ shows them that although they might reckon his life to be less than 50 years, yet his divine life could not be reckoned by human computation. The existence of Christ before his incarnation is not measured by figures. Okay? It's another word that speaks to the long duration before. And then there's one more here. Line actually two of them, line 888, the next page. What is your life? It is even vapor that appears for a little time and then vanish away. But Christ's life is not a vapor. It is never ending, a life existing before the worlds were made. Okay, Christ's life is not a vapor. It is never ending. And I guess that speaks to the idea of people who said that his life is just a vapor, you know, just a, a spirit. She says his life was not a vapor. And then one that I like a lot personally, 914, with the familiarity and ease of eternal habitude, I think that means with the ease of habits that have been developed over eternity, 
Jesus lays his hands on the throne of God with the ease of eternal habitude. Uh, and then there's, there's, there's uh, some titles. Jesus is referred to as one of the eternal dignitaries. Oh, and there's, there's two more on the back page. 978. And I'll start on line 977. He is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, whose throne is of old from everlasting. Behold him, the mighty, uncreated Lord, the all-glorious Redeemer. If that's not clear about his not being created, I don't know what is. The mighty, uncreated Lord. It speaks, though, to eternal duration, too, I believe. 992, I say in the name of the Lord, give your attention to this word. The Lord has ever existed in perfection from all eternity. He has been ever what he now is. I am that I am. He has ever been what he is now. Those are the words that Ellen White used to describe Christ's everlasting to everlasting existence. What do you think of the evidence that we've just looked at? What? Do, do you have any questions? Now, some of those you could interpret, perhaps. <coughs> but when you talk about from everlasting to everlasting, everlasting goes as far in the passage you can imagine. And when, when it speaks of from all eternity, it also speaks to, to, a, to a going back that, that is infinite as well. Yes, sister. Um, how do you explain um, her comment where she says, the man Christ Jesus was not the Lord God Almighty? Yet Christ and the Father are one. Is she just referring to his humanity? Write it down. We'll talk about that later. Now we've jumped ahead of our subject. <laughs> the reason I do this in the order I do is because, you know, first with the Father, you want to establish that, that there's such a thing as non-communicable attributes of God. And the fact that Christ took over communication, when you know that, suddenly Christ is throughout the Old Testament. That's why we start there. And then when we study about Christ, we learn about self-existence and some of those things. And by the time we get to some of like the question you're asking, sister, and we're going to look at, 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 at the Holy Spirit too, some of those questions almost answer themselves. But oftentimes people jump over all of those things and say, let's just talk about that statement. And you cannot come to an answer based on just one statement at that point. Does that make any sense? So there is very much a sequence in what we're doing. Well, let's continue going forward. So we were just discussing Christ is eternal. Um, and my original document just had this, but I made this just, this is the first time I've ever used this, just for camp meeting, because I thought people needed to see the statements in context. We continue. Uh, now, line 10 48, Christ is self-existence with original, unborrowed, underived life. Line 1050, in him was life, okay? John 1, 4, in him was life. And then 1051, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They didn't realize that he was referring to himself. And then, uh, 1059, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, 
some people reading that would suggest that that proves that, that actually, you know, Christ really didn't have it. It was something he received from his father. What do you think about that? Why might Jesus have said something about this commandment I received from my Father? Okay. What else? When Jesus came to this earth, and I think you know this, how often did he exert himself on his own behalf? Never. How often did he heal people without permission from his Father? Never. Did he do anything without his permission from his father? And here's the point. And Ellen White says this, is that when Jesus came to this earth, he was fully divine. And he was fully human at the same time. He is called the God-man. And when he came, his greatest temptation was different than ours. His temptation was not to use the divine power that he had. Okay? That was his great temptation. Our temptation is to choose to trust him for his divine power, right? And so he had to, but she says this, because I did the study in the garden, and I found that she said that how Christ overcame was he, he looked to his divine nature for the power to overcome. I can show you those statements. I don't know if we'll have time in his class, but those statements are there. And she says, we overcome the same way, by looking to him and his divinity for power to overcome. Now, because Jesus could do nothing without his Father's permission. When Jesus says, this commandment I received from my Father, Jesus in effect is saying, I can do this because my Father has said I could do it. Okay? That's not a statement of his inability. It's a statement of, of the reason he can do, say what, he, what he's saying. Sister, you have your hand yeah. up. I thought also Christ stood um, completely every minute in connection with the Father always we're connected through the Holy Spirit. Now, I know myself, I'm not 24 hours connected. That's true. And sometimes our minds go somewhere yeah. and somewhere else, and it is, what is it, this Phillips Phelps? Frank Phillips. Phelps. He's, he's a, the black teacher that sings. Oh, no, 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 then it's someone else. Anyhow, uh, he's, he mentioned he preaches a lot uh, different, and he's, he says too when he started out to be a minister, or there was that they set the time and prayed hour and hour, and it's so important to stay yeah. constantly connected sure. to the Lord. Sure, and that's certainly true of, of, of Jesus, but we must understand when we talk of Jesus, he was always the divine human being. And she says that when Jesus died on the cross, his humanity died, but his divinity never died. Okay? We must understand that we're talking about someone very different from ourselves in many ways. You know, uh, if, if, we would, if we would use a human example, you know, if you're driving down the road and you own a, a Lamborghini, you know, and, uh, and you're tempted to break the speed limit, it's not hard. But if you're driving a, a car made in the 1950s, if you can just get up to the, to the speed limit, you rejoice, right? Well, we're the ones in the old car. And we need the help from God to push us, so to speak. But Christ, when he was on this earth, he had all that power available. He could have healed every person in every town he went to, but he could only do what his Father gave him permission to do. Okay? Have, have, have I made myself clear at all on that? 
Yeah, there's, there's strong support from Ellen White in what I've just shared. Now, Ellen White makes a statement in Desire of Ages, but in other places as well. And, and I have in italics some commentary here. She actually, the, the book Desire of Ages was written in 1898, but already in 1896 and 1897, she talks about this idea of Christ having life unbar uh, original, unborrowed, underived. Okay? To describe Christ's self-existence. What does it mean when you have original life? Doesn't come from anywhere else. Doesn't come from anywhere else, okay? And, and the words unborrowed and underived kind of say the same thing, right? She makes those statements numerous times, and then later we find them in a letter in 1905, in 1912, 1914. So we have strong evidence that in her communication with other people, and, and that data is here in this note, that she was using that phraseology. And um, to be honest with you, uh, the letter when she published, when they published Desire of Ages, this came as a shock. Even though she had already used the phrase two other times, people didn't know about it. And one of our well-known evangelists and, and, and theologians at the time was a man by the name of M. L. Andreasen. And uh, he was convinced absolutely convinced that someone else had written that and had penciled it into the manuscript. And so uh, I'm going to just read from line 1078. This is quoting him. He says, I remember how astonished we were when Desire of Ages was first published, for it contained some things that we considered unbelievable, among others the doctrine of the Trinity, which was not then generally accepted by Adventists. I was particularly interested in the statement on page 530, which at one time caused great concern, quote, in Christ's life, original, unborrowed, underived. That statement may not seem very revolutionary to you, but it was to us. We could hardly believe it, but of course we could not preach contrary to it. I was sure Sister White had never written in Christ's life, original, unborrowed, underived, but now I found it in her own handwriting, just as it had been published. And I need to explain what he's referring to is that when he read this, he, he, he actually got in contact with Ellen White and said, I want to come out and see your writings for myself. And he, I think he spent three months with her, pouring through her writings, because he was so astonished. He was convinced that, that some editor somewhere had played games with it. We continue. But now I found it in her own handwriting, just as it had been published. And then he went on to, to, uh, to publish a, a book with a collection of quotes on Christ as a member of the Godhead. And it's interesting that, that when he went out there, uh, he told Ellen White, I don't want to just look at Desire of Ages. I don't want to just look at the books that have been published. I want to look at the manuscripts. I want to look at the letters. And it was when he looked at those letters that he came under the conviction that she indeed believed in Christ having no beginning. Okay? That's essentially, the, the, they thought they were Arians, the, the Arian idea is the idea that Christ is the Son with a literal beginning at some point. And he said, I realize that we were wrong, that Ellen White did not teach what we believed. Now, if he was there for three months and he was talking with Ellen White about this, do you not agree that we probably have a pretty good idea from his testimony that she did believe in the idea of life, original, unborrowed, underived. 
absolutely. I think she would have corrected him had, had he been mistaken in what he was finding. And, and so I want to share that with you because it is a very, very significant point when we're talking with people who say, well, there was this beginning. It's like, hold on. You know, there was this, this, this thought that Ellen White, you know, wrote in Desire of Ages and other places about Jesus having original life and a life that was underived and unborrowed. And to me, that's, that's, that's some of the strongest evidence we have of, of how she felt on Christ's self-existence, although there are other statements. Unfortunately, I don't think I have any... I don't, I don't have any quotes, but in, uh, in the notes I have on the Godhead, which I've shared with you, I found plenty of statements about Christ's self-existence. Let's go to the next point. Christ is equal with God. Line 1093, John 5.18, The Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Okay, Christ claimed to be equal with God in, in talking with, with the Jewish authorities. And then line 1097, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay? Christ saw himself as equal to his Father. So let's read from footnote number 29 now. Christ did not seek to be thought great, and yet he was the majesty of heaven, equal in dignity and glory with the infinite God. He was God manifested in the flesh. And then, a little bit later, only one equal with the Father could make the sacrifice for the lost race, Divinity alone could exalt the sinner to sonship with God and make him a partaker of the divine nature. Okay, she makes very, very clear statements about Christ's equality with his Father. Uh, Jesus also had previously shared the glory of the Father. We read statements, but John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I'm at line 1100. And then there was also a perfect unity with his father. Um, probably the most famous Old Testament verse is line 1103, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's one of the rare exceptions where I use the New King James Version Bible. Uh, John 10.30, I and my father are one. And then Jesus prayed for us, John 17, 21 to 23, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, and that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Our unity between ourselves is the greatest proof that Jesus was sent to this world. Uh, line 23, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect. I'm at 11:10 now that thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Okay. There was also perfect unity in Christ with his Father. Uh, line, uh, footnote number 30. Believers are to have a confirmed, settled faith in a personal God and a personal Christ. The Father and the Son are perfect in their individual identity, and at the same time they are perfect in their Oneness, okay? So perfect in their individual identity, and at the same time, they are perfect in their oneness. What does that statement tell you about 
the Father in Christ. What does it say about them being distinct individuals? They're separate. They're separate. They are harmonious. They are harmonious. Excuse me? Same values, yes, yes. And we're going to look at that much more carefully when we look at the idea of the three and the one because that's a, a beautiful, beautiful part of, of, of the whole Godhead message that is, is worth remembering. Now, Christ was also the Father's only begotten, and I add the words, one-of-a-kind Son. I'm sure you've, you've heard that phrase brought up. What about the fact that the Bible says that Christ was the only begotten Son of God? Let's look at the verse first, John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then we find it again in 1 John 4.9, And this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him, etc., and then Hebrews 11:17, using the same word, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Hold on. That doesn't sound right, does it? Did Abraham have more than one son? Absolutely. That's a clue that there may be more there than we realize. And, and uh, I think it was yesterday that our morning devotional speaker talked about the fact that when Tyndale came along, he wanted to translate the Bible from, the, from what language? The New Testament. From the Greek instead of what language? From the Latin Vulgate, because the Latin Vulgate had things that had been introduced that were some truth, but in some cases, error. And this is a case where, where John 3.16 was heavily influenced by the Latin Vulgate. Uh, the word behind it is a word called monogenes. And uh, let me just read a little bit uh, about this line 1125, the only begotten, which is the word monogenes. You can see it written there from two words meaning only and kind, thus properly translated unique only or only one of a kind. And so actually, John 3.16, and you'll find it in some translations of the Bible, God's one-of-a-kind son, unique and one-of-a-kind son. That's actually the true translation. Now, I'm not going to, to downplay what, 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 what crept into the King James Version Bible, but, you know, when they say that word proves that he was born at some time, sometime, it's actually, Monaganez does not really include the idea of birth. Let's read further. Unique or one of a kind. Unique is the same thing. Uh, line 1129, absence of the definite article in the Greek either makes monogenes indefinite and only one or makes it an expression of quality in which John would be saying glory as of an only one who had come from beside the Father. This seems evidently the case. And then a line 1141, the translation only begotten here and elsewhere apparently originated with the early fathers of the Catholic Church and entered early English translations of the Bible under the influence of the Latin Vulgate, the official Bible of the Catholic Church. Okay? So there's a couple of places where we have this influence. You know, in, 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 in the epistles of John, there's a statement, and these three are one. Erasmus admits he added that phrase. It's very clear that that, that that phrase was added 
It's just historically known. Uh, some people argue that and say that maybe not, but, but he, he gives the idea that he actually put that in there. I have a, I have to do it when I get home, but I have a website where someone did research into that. Yeah. And they said that they have found evidence back to like two or 300 AD in that area where they were using that. The, the I know that some people say it was there, and I'm not going to argue with them. A thousand years before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I know that, that at least at the time it wasn't there, and, and he admits that, that he, there was pressure for him to put it. Well, that's what I'm saying. If they yeah. say they found evidence yeah. of ancient writings yeah. back to yeah. the early first couple of yeah. centuries A.D., mm-hmm. which is almost a thousand years before and, and, and if that's true, praise God. Yeah. If that's true, praise God. But like I tell people, our belief in the Godhead is not dependent upon the outliers. There's so much other evidence that the things that are questionable, we don't need to get hung up on either, okay? Because if I come through and say, this is absolute proof that the three are one, then we're going to have a long discussion on whether the research is, 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 is sufficient, that kind of thing. So I tell people, look at what we do know and the things that are questionable, you know, realize that we don't have to, to go after every, every little, little piece there at times. Does that disappoint you when I say that? I'm trying to show you the bigger picture so that you have a confidence that you don't need to worry about. Okay. Anyway, um, Line 1149, properly understood of Christ's unique status as the Son of God, the word monogenes distinguishes between him and all others who through faith in him are given power to become the sons of God. And the fact that Abraham offered up his only begotten son using the same word, you know that that he had had a son through Hagar. Now, let's look at just a few of the attributes of Christ as we come to an end. We don't have much time here. Uh, Line 1157, in Christ dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead. Look at footnote number 33. Christ had not ceased to be God when he became man. Though he had humbled himself to humanity, the Godhead was still his own. Okay, So though Christ humbled himself, the Godhead was still his own. And I think a key point in this is that Christ humbled himself. It wasn't like the Father said, I'm going to humble you now. Christ took this humbling upon himself. Christ was seeking to lead them from their low condition of faith to the experience they might receive if they truly realized that he was God in human flesh. Okay? The Godhead was his own, even though he came to this earth. Christ is unchanging. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ is all-knowing. Uh, Peter said to him, he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. And Paul said in Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It goes without saying that Christ was all-powerful, a line 1174, that he's infinitely good, 1179, and other attributes. We're not going to go through all of those at this point. And then Christ's human life. And we'll take just a few moments before we close. Here's a couple of highlights. Line 1219, Christ came to fulfill a plan ordained before the foundation of the world. Line 1221, but 
1 Peter 1, 19-20, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Okay? Foreordained before the foundation of the world. Line 1237, Christ voluntarily humbled himself in coming to earth. John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The footnote, after, from Manuscript 9.1896, after Christ had condescended to leave his high command, step down from an infinite height and assume humanity, he could have taken upon him any condition of humanity that he might have chosen, but greatness and rank were nothing to him, and he selected the lowest and most humble walk of life. Christ also took upon himself our infirmities, line 1266. Matthew 8, 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Line 30, uh, footnote 35, first, for 4,000 years, the race had been decreasing in physical strength, in mental power, in moral worth, and Christ took upon him the infirmities of degenerate humanity. Only thus could he rescue man from the lowest depths of degradation. And then, line 1274, Christ had two distinct natures while he was on earth. That was probably the most encouraging thing I discovered in my study. Uh, Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. Footnote 36, Christ had two natures, the nature of a man and the nature of God. In him, divinity and humanity were combined. He exhibited a perfect humanity combined with deity. And by preserving each nature distinct, he has given to the world a representation of the character of God and the character of a perfect man. Listen to that. By keeping those two natures distinct. He shows us what God is and what man may become, God-like in character. Then again, our Lord was tempted as man is tempted. He was capable of yielding to temptations as are human beings. His finite nature was pure and spotless, but the divine nature that led him to say to Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father, was not humanized, neither was humanity deified by the blending or union of the two natures. Each retained its own essential character and properties. And that's something, that's quite an amazing statement of, of the two natures of Christ. I believe we'll have plenty to study when we get to heaven, won't we? And then line, uh, and then from Second Peter, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Okay, footnote 37. He came to this earth to work in behalf of men that they might no longer be under the control of satanic agencies. But while bearing human nature, he was dependent upon the omnipotent for his life. In his humanity, he laid hold of the divinity of God, and thus every member of the human family has the privilege of doing. Christ did nothing that human nature may not do if it partakes of the divine nature. Isn't that amazing? His humanity laid hold of what? The divinity of God. And we can lay hold of the divinity of God as well. And then... John 1, 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That's the incarnation. 
Let me read the footnote there. The incarnation of Christ is the mystery of all mysteries. Uh, Christ entered into our experience. Um, notice, um, and, and in this, he constantly received the Holy Spirit. The footnote 39, the same Holy Spirit that abode in Christ was by divine promise to be imparted constantly to every disciple of his. Even Christ during his ministry was in his divine human nature, constantly receiving the Holy Spirit and imparting blessings as he went about doing his appointed work. And then there are the supernatural signs that accompanied his life. Um, and when I speak of that, I speak of, of how when he was born, God sent wise men to bow down and worship him. The Holy Spirit came down at his baptism. That was a supernatural thing. A voice came out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son. That was a supernatural thing. Okay? There were multiple, multiple things. And when he went to heaven, what happened? Did he, did he disappear? No. He ascended out of sight, right? The life of Christ had the supernatural going on around him all the time. Proof that there was something more than just ordinary. Okay? He suffered and then he died. As we, and, and, and under his dying, John 19, 30, when Jesus, line 13, 98, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The quotation, or the, the footnote from Review and Herald, July 5, 1887, he died not through being compelled to die, but by his own free will. This was humility. I think we better, well, I have to share one more thing. Can I share one more thing? Because this is a point that, that people... Is anyone running off to another appointment? No. Praise the Lord. We need to have this to finish up. Go to line 1456. Jesus loves to have us pray to him. Some people have told me that... You, they, they come to me and they say, Dan, have you ever noticed that, that we're never told to, to pray to Christ? Notice... Acts 1.24, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, thou knowest the hearts of all men. Show whether these two thou hast chosen. Who were they praying to at that point? They were talking to Christ, right? Uh, when Sto Stephen was stoned, Acts 7.59-60, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Okay, that was a prayer. And 2 Corinthians 12, 8-9, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Paul is saying when he had the thorn, he, he talked to Jesus about it. Now, maybe when you think of prayer, you think it has to be you know, expressed with certain kinds of words, but you know, the shortest prayer was Peter's when he was drowning, right? And he cried, Lord, save me. And I think some of our prayers would get through faster if we just chose to tell the Lord what was on our hearts. We could have a study on, on, on how our prayers should be shortened to the point. Uh, and don't misunderstand when I say that, but let me share a quotation with you. Line, uh, footnote 42. If we believe in Jesus, we will love to think of him, love to talk with him, love to pray to him. Okay, we'll love to think of him, love to talk of him, love to pray to him. That's from the Review and Herald, May 30, 1882. And then the Lord loves to have children pray to him, and the dear Savior will hear that prayer that is offered in sincerity, letter 22A, 1879. Well, 
We better close on the last page. What's there is, is a verse where, where, where John says, those that deny that Jesus is the Christ also deny the Father and the Son. Okay? Uh, and then line 15, 18, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who, who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Well, we need to have a word of prayer in closing. I thank you. If you have questions, don't hesitate to write down questions because we could, get, we could just not cover what we need to cover. So we will hold the questions and try and respond at the right time. I want to kneel to have a final prayer. Father in heaven, it's a, it's a great blessing to study this subject. And Father, where I've dishonored you in any way, please forgive me. I pray that you'll help all of us to so appreciate you and what you gave us in, in, in loving us, in, in, in giving Christ, whatever that means, because I think you were both involved in that. I want to thank you. I pray that we will have greater respect for the Godhead, that we will have greater confidence, and that, Father, just as we have had our moments of struggling to understand, we will be patient with others as well. And that our greatest desire will not be to prove that, our, that we are right necessarily, but that, that we really represent Jesus and, and the Father and, and, and have the help of the Holy Spirit as, as was planned. So thank you for these moments. Continue to bless us and keep us and bless this entire encampment, Father. Might this be a time of real revival based on the presence and the power of God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.